Sometimes it seems we are more divided than ever before. Unable to speak across the differences, we must engage to create the world we want for ourselves and our children. On Being's Better Conversations Guide is a free resource and reflection for beginning this adventure, creating new spaces for listening, conversation, and relationship. Because the point of speaking together differently is to learn to live together differently. Go to civilconversationsproject.org and find the Better Conversations Guide in the Resources tab. Again, that's civilconversationsproject.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Dr. Rachel Yehuda. Download the MP3 of our produced show with her at onbeing.org. That's Rachel. That is Rachel. And I think I... That's Chris. Hi, Rachel. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, my favorite people in one place. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is this um? This is not live, right? It's recorded. No, no, it's not live. It, it's a real conversation. It can be nonlinear and, um, yeah, you, we, nonlinear and edited. Nonlinear and edited. Yeah, <laughs> although we do we do put the unedited um, uh, we do put the unedited interview up, but of course that's just for obsessives. There do okay. seem to be quite a few obsessives in the world. <laughs> Great. Great to know. There are a lot of them. <laughs> But yes, so we'll talk for about uh, 60 to 90 minutes, and then we, we'll edit it down for the radio hour. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. That's a long time. I didn't realize. Oh, you did? Great. Okay. And I can talk forever. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been watching um, some of the talking you've been doing and, and reading other interviews you've done, and I'm also confident that we can fill this time productively. I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to this. Great. And, you know, I've interviewed... Um, Bessel van der Kolk, who I think have do you work you've worked with him, right? He's a good friend of mine. He's a good friend, yeah, he's wonderful. He can also talk forever. Yeah, he's a good doc. <laughs> Chris, he do has you a need lot to say? Do you need <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> do you need um yes, I do. I love I could, yeah. Tell us something mundane like what you did what you had for have you had lunch yet? Yes, uh, it's after I have lunch. had lunch, yes. Okay. What did you have for lunch? I had um, an avocado on rice cakes. <laughs> Very noble. <laughs> yes. Um, Chris, do you, do you have enough, or do you want us to keep uh, a little more chatting? <clears throat> um, do, does it sound like I have a frog in my throat? Um, do you have a glass of water there? I have a glass of water. No, Is you that sound better? okay. I don't hear it. But, um, okay, terrific. But the good thing about not doing it live is that if you want to, you know, take a break, have a drink, if you need to cough, um, it's just no problem. We can start over. Fabulous. Or we can move back or we can keep going, but it's not an issue. Okay. So Great. Chris says he's all right. I don't ever like to get into anything substantive before the before we're rolling because something important yeah, might no, happen. Yeah, no, you're totally right about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but now we can do it. So, um, okay. so I'm... I'm really happy that you made the time for this. Um, do, would you have any questions for me before we start? Uh, nope. Okay. All right. Well, tell me, um, 
I'm curious. Uh, you you talk a lot about uh, growing up in a neighborhood in Cleveland that was full of Holocaust survivors, which ultimately um, played a role and and was a became kind of a crucible for your work. But you know, was there a, was there a um, was there a spiritual background to your childhood, and and specifically, was there did your family have a connection um, to the Holocaust as well? Uh, I grew up in an observant Jewish community, and my family is observant. And the Jewish community in Cleveland, Ohio, is a close-knit community. And we all went to the same Jewish school. And um, a lot of my friends had parents who were Holocaust survivors. Mm. My own parents were Israeli. And to be honest with you, I didn't think that much of it at the time— there was only a difference between people that seemed to be American with American parents and people that seemed to be uh, to have parents that were not American. There was that difference. Mm. But I didn't focus particularly on distinctions between um, Holocaust survivors and other parents that had emigrated to the United States. Mm-hmm. So how do you trace the roots of your interest, which really became a passion in you know, psychiatry and neuroscience, and and really also this this notion of trauma. How did, how did that emerge for you? Well, it emerged by accident. Um, I think that that's the truth. I was interested in uh, psychiatry and neuroscience. I did graduate work at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Mm-hmm. And, and when was um, this? Because um, neuroscience is such a young field. Where was neuroscience when you first well, that's started? That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this was <laughs> this was in the um, in the eighties. Okay, this in the eighties. And it's true. Um, the year that they gave out the PhDs in my year. They told us we had a choice between getting a Ph.D. in psychology or getting a Ph.D. in neuroscience. Mm. And we were the first graduating class that actually were given that choice based on the curriculum that um, we had done. And so you're right. It was a new it was a new field. Mm Yes. Um, But I was doing basic laboratory research. I'm sorry. There's okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Apparently there's something on the line that I don't think you can hear. I'm so sorry. But Chris is going to um he's gonna hang up he's gonna drop the line and, and we'll pick it back up in a few minutes. Okay. <coughs> was were could you guys is that being recorded or was that is it just on the line? Really? Oh, okay. I wasn't. I just kept going because I thought maybe it was one of those things that we can hear. But ugh. Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. Is this better? Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, you you sounded fine before. It was just this thing that was happening technologically, and I okay. Now I'm fine. I said like I was in a tin can. Is that because something was okay? I'm so Do you sorry. Want, are we going to start from the beginning? No, we won't start from the beginning. But um, 
But let's start. Um, you're just well. So, Chris, do you, the story about about being the first graduating class with neuroscience. That's a that's there, right? Or should we do that again? Okay, okay, okay. Um, yeah. So, so it's pretty. You've you have um, you discovered this 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 interest and also commenced your career at this such an interesting time. I mean, this whole field of psychiatry and neuroscience. Um, I mean, neuroscience really has emerged, and it sounds like it was emerging um, at just as you were doing your your studies. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there's that click again. Is it something that I'm doing? No, it's not. <laughs> it has it has nothing to do with you. It's just it's just that it doesn't actually happen very often, but it's, you know, technology <clears throat> I know. I just don't think it's gonna. No, but I think because then you'll set up, you create the mood again. All right. Once you fix the problem. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm sorry, Rachel. This doesn't happen. It happens very rarely. Are you there? It doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. Well, I I hate. I don't want to retrace. I don't want to do exactly the same thing. So I'm just gonna let's start over. And I'm just gonna ask the questions a little differently. Um. Uh, you you have you have t- well. It's, 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 the way I start all of my conversations, whoever I'm talking to, is is just wondering about um, the spiritual background. Um, wondering if there was a how how you would talk how you would describe how you would start to describe the spirit religious or spiritual background of your childhood however you would however you would describe that now how would you start I had a very strong spiritual background I was raised in an observant Jewish community I went to a Jewish day school um, my father is was a rabbi. Hmm. Um, so there was a lot of um, Jewish study and Jewish culture and Jewish religion in our home and also at school. So I was surrounded by, actually immersed in the bubble of observant Judaism. All right. And you, you, there were, it was a, it happened to be a neighborhood in Cleveland that it, in which there were many survivors of the Holocaust. You said that your parents were Israeli, right? And they didn't, they, you didn't have a direct connection to the Holocaust, but you were aware of this in the lives of a lot of your, of your peers? What I was aware of was that some children had American parents and some, some children didn't have American parents and that there was a very big difference culturally in the homes of Americans first and second-generation Americans compared to the homes where we, the children, were first-generation Americans and um, our parents had come from someplace else. Right. But I didn't really think about the differences between coming from Poland or being in the Holocaust and coming from Israel. Right. I, 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 that became clear much later on. 
Yeah, and and I guess given given the the work that you then got into, you probably started to analyze those differences. In a, with a, through, through another in, lens. In retrospect, in retrospect, I began to really see that there was a specific difference mm-hmm. uh, in children um, who were raised by Holocaust survivors. But at the time I grew up, and also in the beginning of starting to really look at this issue, I didn't really see it that clearly. Yeah. So... You, you told you have you told me that you were the first graduating class um, where you were given the option of of getting was this your PhD in this in is my PhD PhD in yes. psychology or neuroscience that yes. this young field um, was was really just uh, coming into its own um, and so I just I wonder how you would start to tell the story of, you know, in your lifetime, the emergence of, you know, like the difference between what you thought you were going into when you, I guess, decided maybe, what was it, that you wanted to study psychiatry, um, and how you've watched that develop. Um, what's been fascinating to you to be part of about that? Well, it was fascinating from the very beginning. Um, my work in graduate school was focused on stress hormones. Okay. And there was a great deal of interest in understanding um, the biologic response to stress. And then was, in the was 70s, this like around the time that stress was becoming this word that was in the culture? Is that in in a, well, sorry, go on. Yeah, I, I think stress as a word was in the culture really in the forties and fifties also. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until around that time that there was a biology associated with stress. Right. And people were very interested in it. And they were very interested in this idea that something that happens to you uh, generates a biologic response. And people knew a lot about stress hormones from the adrenals. But what started happening in the 70s and the 80s was a recognition that there were stress hormone receptors in the brain And what that meant was that the brain wasn't just um, barking orders at peripheral tissue like the adrenal gland. There was a dialogue going on. It wasn't wasn't just the brain regulating everything. It was an ability of stress hormones to circle back and influence how the brain functioned. And even in the 80s as a graduate student, I was awed by that concept. So just take me take me a little bit farther and so so what was different what what was what tell me what you were in awe of just to explain that a little bit more about what was unexpected about that and fascinating Well in my primitive understanding of how I thought behavior worked yeah uh, there was a brain and the brain functioned in a mysterious way to regulate everything else in the body. And it was all about consciousness and thinking, and it was all directed. Well, it was just, it, it was simply that the communication yeah. would go from the brain to everything else. Yeah. So if, um, if endocrine gra- glands released stress hormone, that was ultimately because someone gave an order from the top. Okay. There would be a hormone-releasing factor that would stimulate the pituitary gland, that would then stimulate 
that would release another peptide that would stimulate the endocrine gland, and then you'd have downstream effects. But when steroid receptors were discovered in hippocampal tissue and in other brain regions, what that really meant was that the brain isn't just exerting downstream effects. It means that the brain is also responding to the effects of stress hormones. It's like a feedback. It's, it's like being asked to fill out a form. How was our service today? <laughs> and you get, you get to tell the brain something in return. And so, and that, so was that, interesting. Meant, that meant that things were lodging in our bodies and that, that, that physiologically... That things were happening at a physiologically level and affecting um, our what we all the things we associate with the brain, um, and that was new. It was new to me. Mm-hmm. I think it was new. I think it was new because everything was new. Yeah, right. Um, but right. it was, but it was certainly new to me. Mm-hmm. And the work that I did in graduate school um, was really following up a series of findings that um, suggested that when you remove adrenal glands in infant uh, rodent pups, um, you get a big, uh, the brain begins to develop um, much more than usual, and you get an adult rodent that has a brain that is 15% larger than if you hadn't removed the adrenal glands. And that was really interesting because what it meant was yeah. that stress hormones play a really critical role in how the brain develops and how behavior develops. Wow. So my understanding is that you you wanted to look at this connection in people and you and I know I'm simplifying this, but at some point you went back to your old neighborhood in Cleveland and you started studying um Holocaust survivors and I don't know if you were studying the children of Holocaust survivors at that point. And you found a similar cortisol profile in them that one would find in veterans who had PTSD. Well, the story is a little bit longer than that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'll I'll make it very short. Yeah. Uh, What happened was that I was having trouble understanding the relevance to humans of that work. And it was very important for me to be involved with something that was directly clinically relevant. Um, Of course, I now see that was very directly clinically relevant. But um, I asked to do some projects in people. I was granted permission to do it and eventually ended up uh, doing a postdoctoral fellowship at Yale Medical School uh, with some of the folks from Amherst. And uh, we... One thing led to another, and I found myself at the Veterans Administration um, just a few years after the official diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder right, right. Uh, became known in the DSM. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were really among the first people, that group, to look at uh, the biology of post-traumatic stress disorder and the observation that we made, which was really very hard to understand at that time, was that the combat Vietnam veterans showed lower cortisol levels. Right. And it was a surprising observation because 
um, cortisol levels, as you may know, are associated with stress responses. And people that have depression and other kinds of mental illnesses and symptoms often show high cortisol levels. So this idea that combat veterans had low cortisol levels was really kind of almost a crisis um, (laughs) in the field. And it was a crisis because the diagnosis of PTSD itself was controversial. And a lot of people weren't sure that there really was such a thing. It was a real a lot, thing. There was a lot of cynicism around whether this is um, just a way to get compensation or disability. Yeah. So, uh, of course, the people that had been treating combat veterans with PTSD knew it was a real thing. But this idea that the cortisol level wouldn't be high, it really was something that required um, investigation. And one day I said to my advisor, uh, Dr. Earl Giller at Yale, I I said, I don't know, maybe you just got to pack it up around this post-traumatic stress disorder thing. (laughs) I grew up in a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors and there are nothing like the patients here at the VA. And he looked at me and he said, that, Rachel, is a testable hypothesis. (laughs) And then it went from there. We decided to um, drive to Cleveland, um, a bunch of us, and test the hypothesis that um, Holocaust survivors were similar to Vietnam veterans. And essentially what we found is that there were a lot more similarities than we would have ever dreamed of. And that they also had these low cortisol levels, like the, like the, they're, they're the, some of the same chemical markers were there, biological well, markers. That, that, that is what we observed. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of the fact that Holocaust survivors um, notoriously were not treatment-seeking in mental health, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we asked Holocaust survivors about that. You know, I some of some of the people were people that I knew, and some of the people I didn't know. Um, we said, if you have these symptoms, I mean, we asked them about the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. We asked about nightmares. We asked about flashbacks. We asked about those things. They had ha- they had been suffering many of them for decades with these symptoms, mm. and when we asked, well, did it ever occur to you to go and seek help? Um, many of them said, who could understand what we had gone through? And one woman said to me, you know, Dr. Yehuda, we don't have VAs like your veterans do. <laughs> and Gosh. I thought to myself, whoa, and uh, went, went home. And within two weeks, there was we established a Holocaust clinic for Holocaust survivors at Mount Sinai. And the the field that you, the, the again, very new, young, even younger field that you have not only stepped onto but helped are helping to shape is this, this world of, of epigenetics. Um, and I think there's one way, and which is the idea that not only do experiences um, lodge physiologically, um, but that physiological changes can actually be passed on to the next generation, transmitted generationally, transgenerationally. Um, one way that you, one helpful way to me that you've talked about epigenetics, as you said, think about genetics as the computer and epigenetics as the software, the app, the program. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but what's fascinating is you you talk about we so so again like you know in this old way some of these old ways we're unlearning we think about 
we would think about biological change between generations as being part of as being evolutionary as something that would take time but what you're learning is that that epigenetics um it, it, it's it's a mechanism for short-term adaptation that even genetic mutation um can happen quickly um and it's all around this trauma so that trauma itself gets inherited uh, yeah, it, it's it's not a genetic change per se, but it's a change to the program. Uh-huh. Um, and it makes a lot of sense that we should have this capability to influence not only the next generation, but to influence how we function in our current environment. Because if something happens in the environment, we have to react to it. Uh-huh. And um, we're just starting to understand that just because you're born with a certain set of genes, you're not in a biologic prison as a result of those genes. That uh, changes can be made to how those genes function that can help. Yeah. And maybe some um, changes are more likely to occur than others, and some genes are more flexible than other genes. But the idea is a very simple idea, and you hear it from people um, all the time, people say when something cataclysmic happens to them, I'm not the same person. Yeah. I've been changed. I am not the same person that I was. And um, we have to start asking ourselves, well, what do they mean by that? Of course, they're the same person. They have the same DNA, don't they? Um, they do. But they're not the same person must mean something. And what I think it means is that the environmental influence has been so overwhelming um, that it has forced a major constitutional change Mm. and enduring transformation. Mm. And um, epigenetics gives us the language and the science to be able to start unpacking that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's so interesting. So I, so you're right. I said it has a genetic. It's a genetic change, but but it's it's it as you say, it's transformation that has the for it has genetic force. Right. Uh huh. So, so what this then helps, you know, it, it is it's it's one of these insights that then just starts to change the way we see so many ordinary things, right? I mean, you. Um, it, there's been this, so it makes sense to us, I think, that parents who are traumatized in whatever way um, would pass, would 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 exhibit things around their children, right? That would would affect the children. But what you are showing is that. While that is true, there's also something that, in fact, children born to um, children who 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 in in this sense to inherit um, trauma actually are born with less of a capacity. To, some of them born with less of a capacity to metabolize stress, and is that a, an actual genetic change? Well, let's unpack what you've said. Okay. You've just said okay. A lot of and please things. keep and please <laughs> keep correcting me. And I'm trying to. Well, yeah. I'm just going to clarify. Yeah, not yeah, so much yeah. correct. Yeah. Um, there are two ways to influence the next generation, at least. Okay. One way is to directly transmit something that you have 
and you transmit it in the form that you have it. So let's say a change has been made onto your DNA, an epigenetic mark is now now sits on a promoter region of your gene, for example. And through the magic of meiosis, um, that that mark gets um, transmitted through the act of reproduction. It, it, the cell divides, there's reproduction, and, it, and the change sticks, and it's present in the next generation. That's one thing. That's a transmitted change. Okay. There's another kind of change that involves um, giving your child either either at conception or in utero or post-conception, a set of circumstances, and the child is forced to make an adaptation to those circumstances. So those are two very different kinds of um, circumstances. I think that both things happen, Mm -hmm. but we have to keep them separate so that we can talk about them. Right. And and we're... How would you talk about the what the how the, what the insights of this epigenetics adds into our understanding of those dynamics? Um, when uh, you know, and, and and this entire idea of what children what can be inherited, passed on. Well, let me go back to why we started looking at this in the first place. Yeah, uh, we established a clinic for Holocaust survivors. Um, really in response to the story that I told you before. It's a, yeah. it's a true story. I went back to my chairman. Uh, we discussed that it was very important for Mount Sinai to do this. And we got completely set up to treat Holocaust survivors. Um, and what we found was that our phone did ring, but it was mostly children of Holocaust survivors who called us. Okay. And what they said was, hey... We're casualties of the Holocaust, too. Mm -hmm. I'm damaged as a result of the Holocaust. I'm damaged because uh, my parents are damaged. And we we got so many of those calls that we had to listen to them. Mm -hmm. And we started bringing people in for a clinic. We changed the name of the clinic from the Mount Sinai Holocaust Clinic to Specialized Program for Holocaust Survivors and Their Families. Okay. And we started to really listen, um, both at the clinical intake and during the psychotherapy. Um, And what we began to see quite clearly was that offspring were reporting that they had been affected by the Holocaust in many different kinds of ways, but in in a very coherent and cohesive pattern. They talked about feeling um, traumatized by witnessing the symptoms of their parents, and they talked about the expectations, being traumatized by some of the expectations that the Holocaust had placed on them, such as that they are the reason their parents survived, and therefore there was a whole set of things that they would now have to accomplish so that all the people that died, they could give their lives meaning. Um, They felt that they were always, even though things were generally good in their lives, from an objective perspective, they were always waiting for the other shoe to drop or the rug to be pulled from under them. Mm. Um, They had difficulty in any kind of a separation, circumstance, divorce, um, those kinds of things. And they described essentially this problem 
in separating from their parents. I mean, at the time we started to um, treat Holocaust survivor offspring, most of them were in their late 30s or 40s or 50s, and their mindset was to describe themselves based on who their parents were. And most people at that age are someone's parent or someone's yeah. spouse. You know, yeah. they're not very few people at that age are describing themselves in terms of um, of who their parents were. And I thought that in itself was very interesting. But I think that, you know, previously we we might have all said if we had a conversation about this, if this phenomenon was presented, that that, that was such a vast trauma in that generation and that somehow it, it it might make some kind of sense that emotionally this that the, emotionally and psychologically the children suffered but but what you are observing goes farther than that well the question became what do we do to help people like this mm-hmm. um, and many children of Holocaust survivors had really been to a lot of therapists unlike their parents they had yeah, right spent a lot of money on their mental health and didn't always feel that they really got to the heart of the matter. Um, And so I thought, well, look, I'm spending all this effort trying to understand post-traumatic stress disorder from a biologic perspective in the hopes that we'll be able to figure out how to better treat trauma survivors if we understand the underlying biologic targets and the underlying biologic mechanisms involved, why don't I just apply that same strategy towards understanding Holocaust offspring? And so essentially we began a research program that did the exact same thing with Holocaust offspring as uh, we were doing with trauma survivors, whether they be combat veterans or victims of interpersonal violence or Holocaust survivors. And well, and we learned a lot from from that approach. What did what and what did you learn that was surprising and 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 new? Oh well, well, first of all, this idea that they felt um, more vulnerable that could be supported by by fact. And it turned out that Holocaust offspring were three times more likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder if they were exposed to a traumatic event than uh, demographically similar uh, Jewish persons uh, whose so parents they, did not survive the Holocaust. So in their that lifetime, they were more vulnerable to post-traumatic stress in whatever experiences came their way. Right, but mm-hmm. not whatever experiences came right. away. What was very, very mm-hmm. interesting was that there were some experiences um, that didn't register that much, but all experiences, that all traumatic experiences that involved some kind of an interpersonal component um, was... Um, was very difficult, was was more likely to be difficult. Huh. But Holocaust offspring also showed a lot of resilience-related qualities. But in terms of this idea of being more vulnerable to um, depression or anxiety, that was real. Yeah. Um, we also found, and this really was very surprising to us, that Holocaust offspring had the same um, neuroendocrine or hormonal abnormalities that we were viewing in Holocaust survivors and persons with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. 
And that was true even if the Holocaust offspring did not have post-traumatic stress disorder themselves and was particularly true if the Holocaust offspring was a child of a parent with post-traumatic stress disorder. And later on, we refined that even more so that we realized that the specific risk for certain things like post-traumatic stress disorder uh, was associated with having a mother that had post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And... um Okay, and so it's so complicated and interesting, and I don't want to I don't want to simplify it. Um, you have also taken the this this inquiry to other populations, like um, you've studied uh, women the the children of women who survived the nine eleven attacks and were at certain points of pregnancy at, at that moment. Is that right? Yes. And so how so because again I think the Holocaust is such a singularly massive event. Um but you are also finding this that this idea of generational transmission um it, it occurs in other in other kinds of circumstances other kinds of trauma. So did you tell me did you find the same kind of um a similar did you have kind of similar findings in the with the after in with the post 9/11 we did uh, we we weren't able to do as extensive a workup but i want to get back to something you said that's okay. really very important okay. about the holocaust being this overwhelming trauma yeah. i mean part of why it's such an overwhelming trauma is because it happened on such a large scale yeah but what we have to realize is that individuals who are traumatized um maybe in a very private way, um, are, off, are, are devastated by the things that happen to them. They're just not as public. They may not be as prolonged. They may not be as great. But, the, but for somebody to be pregnant and in the World Trade Center while those buildings are coming down, I mean, imagine what that must have been like. Yeah. Um, that's your own personal holocaust. It may not last very long, but you come home and you know that this can't be good for your fetus. Yeah. Um, so you spend a lot of time worrying. Plus, the news is telling stories about all the toxins that are in the air right, right. and and all the devastation. And so this becomes really uh, a watershed moment mm-hmm. um, that you know, in comparison to the Holocaust may seem not as great, but in the life of the person that suffered, it is very great. Right, right. Yeah. So I just wanted to clarify no, that that's because very I think that yeah. that's really important. And I think we can understand uh, people a lot better if we take the time to understand the impact that these events have on them personally. Just what, what we look for when we study um, the impact of a trauma is how, how big the event is compared to what usually goes on for a person. Okay. And it's this idea of so this overwhelming change 
that is what I think resets and recalibrates multiple biologic systems in, a, in an enduring way. So we, we have to be able to visualize that in order to understand why the body makes such major and drastic changes. Because, of course, what we've been taught in school is that you have a stress response, and after a few minutes, everything gets back to normal. We right. call it homeostasis. The body sort of bounce, bounces back like a rubber band. And that happens with respect to extremely circumscribed systems, but not, it, not with respect to the entire person. Okay. It, it seems, and I want to say, um, I, this, this, and I think this comes through, not just in what you're saying, but how you're saying it, that, that this knowledge that we're gaining about ourselves is a form of power. Um, and that there, it, ha- it holds lots of promise and also very practical applications now. So we will talk about that. I, I you know, I do. It, it, it also makes it um, this science also makes it possible to talk about things that are hard for us to talk about. I mean, this whole notion of generational, generationally transmitted trauma. Um. It, it gives a kind of a chemical basis for talking about, you know, ha- what happens to populations of refugees or, you know, African-Americans in this country who have this history of generational trauma or Aboriginal peoples in Australia. Or and there it's, I was reading about some work in generational trauma that Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart did in, on the Pine, mm-hmm. Pine Ridge Reservation. Um you know, using the term of the soul wounds, the, the wounding of the Native American soul, that kind of language, um, this is science that is putting something to that phenomenon. Uh, that, se- that seems to me to be quite new. It's a different, it's a more holistic way of um, describing uh, what happens to human beings, um, both what damages, you know, groups of human beings. Also, as I said, it's a way to think about beyond that, that that is new. Yes, but it doesn't all, all have to be negative. I mean, I think right. that yeah. it, creates, it, it, it creates a certain reality that the experiences that happen to us as a, as a culture, particularly if it happens in a societal way or mm-hmm. in, to a group of people, really bears a greater collective weight on all of us um, across the generations. But the purpose of epigenetic changes, I think, is simply to increase the repertoire of possible responses. Um, I don't think it's meant to damage or not damage people. It just, it, it expands the range of biologic responses. And that is, can be a very positive thing when that's needed. I mean, who would you rather be in a war zone with? Somebody that's had previous adversity, knows how to defend themselves, yeah. or somebody that has never had to fight for anything? Right. So you're saying might be that very our, advantaged in many other they, social and cultural ways. So you're saying that our that there's an intelligence yeah. in our bodies behind this adaptation. Is oh that, yes. Is, I, yes. I, right. I, right. There is a wisdom in our body mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um. 
But do you know what I mean about saying that it it opens up some conversations that we, you know, to be able to talk about this in terms of science and in terms of physiology, uh, it it opens up a new vocabulary for talking about things that are very difficult, you know. Yes, I think that's right. I think that in general, um, the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder has allowed us to acknowledge that trauma effects last. They endure. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't all go away. And now epigenetics allows us to extend it to generational. Yeah. Are are you aware of... I'm I'm just suddenly aware of a lot of work going... And I know you're you're so much more in the middle of this, but just as an outsider, I'm aware of this, this, this discussion and this... These approaches finding their way, you know, I, I was in California last year. The California Endowment is doing all this work on, you know, healthy communities and and putting the notion of trauma, the, the, the children being traumatized, and a, a much more expansive um, understanding of what that means based on a lot of this science. Um and trying to acknowledge that and treat that uh, or help the children themselves become more self-aware and, and to, to modulate themselves rather than just punishing them for bad behavior. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, how we think about legacy trauma changes, if you, if you want, yeah. historical trauma, um, I, you know, I, I've given that a lot of thought. Um, in the Jewish religion, we we do memorialize trauma. We have many um, days. We even have a Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, we have fast days that commemorate the destruction of the temple. We we have um, on an individual level. We memorialize the date of death of loved ones, we say Yisker, which is a memorial service. Um, but what's very interesting about, about that is that these days occur on a specified time on the calendar. Mm. They start at a certain time, they end at a certain time, and then so too the effects end. So you, you set aside a certain part of your life to remember and acknowledge um, but it doesn't own you. Uh, when you're able to put something in a context, you carry it with you, but you carry it with you in a way that promotes more reflection, mm. in a way that gives you more of a context, in a way that shows you where you've come from, in a way that honors your past, but not in a way that overtakes your past and makes a future predetermined or impossible. So I think that that, we have to be very careful about how we talk about generational uh, effects. A lot of people want to say generational scars, but they're merely effects. You cannot run from your past, but maybe you would run farther if you carried your past with you as long as you can control it. And I think that that is really um, what we want to understand. We want to understand what it means to have a greater repertoire of behavior. Um, 
what it means to be, you know, we, ta- we have a concept about being optimized to your environment, right? Yeah. So let's say for some reason your parents transmitted to you biologic changes that are very appropriate to um, starvation, but you don't but you don't live in a culture where food is not plentiful. Yeah. You're just not optimized. Um, but I think that if we develop an awareness of what the biologic uh, changes from stress and trauma are meant to do, then I think we can develop a better a better way of explaining to ourselves what our true capabilities and potentials are. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm, I'm so, I'm so with you, and I, I, I mean, what you just described about how, um, how Judaism in particular, and I, I think religious ritual, there's a, there's always been this innate wisdom to that, it kind of creating a container, um, as you said, creating where the, the pain, and the trauma is acknowledged but not allowed to. Um, I mean, that it has its place, right? That it does have its place, and I, again, you know, I just keep thinking about. Um, I feel like part of, and this would be a positive, but it's it's challenging for us culturally to. to, to it also says that when we have, um, you know, this this whole issue of race is so with us now of 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 this legacy in African American communi- communities of all kind of layers of trauma across history. Um, it seems to me that one of the things this science is t- is saying is that we we that somehow in the process of healing and addressing that in a new way, there is kind of a need to create that container of acknowledgement. I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking out loud. I just wonder if you think about this kind of um, implication of this work you're doing. I I think about it quite frequently uh, because I. I'm very challenged by thinking how this information can be empowering and not disempowering. Yeah. And one of the studies that we uh, published maybe a year ago um, showed that some epigenetic changes occur in response to psychotherapy. Hmm. And I felt that that was a very um, interesting and important observation because what it means is that, you know, if we're saying that environmental circumstances can create one kind of change. A different environmental circumstance creates another kind of change. Yeah. That's very empowering. Yeah. That healing um, that healing also is transmitted. <clears throat> exactly. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've been um, talking in some way or another to ex- to, ex- to to survivors of extreme trauma for I don't know more than 25 years now. <laughs> really a long time. Yeah. I think I have spoken to certainly hundreds, but probably closer to more than a thousand um, trauma survivors. And I think the message of how you take your trauma forward and use it positively is something that a lot of people really resonate with. I mean, there was a brief moment in our field where... Um, many scientists thought that if they could obliterate the memory for the trauma, that would be a cure for PTSD. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that for most people it would be a cure for PTSD. I don't think most people don't want to remember what happened to them. They want to not be tormented by that memory. 
and they want to be able to take all that suffering and convert it into something positive. And that's why you see a lot of trauma survivors engaged in in social justice and um, and trying to help prevent future tragedies. I mean, the, it's not an accident that many children of Holocaust survivors are in the medical or help-seeking be- uh, professions. Right. <laughs> um, when you ask them about social justice and when you ask them about... Um, about their obligations as a result of surviving the Holocaust, it is very clear that they're among the first people to try to do something, to be proactive. So I think that the podium of suffering provides an unparalleled opportunity, not to mention the fact that for for really uh, for for reasons that I can't quite articulate, trauma survivors really trust fellow trauma survivors mm. um, sometimes in a in a more deep way than they trust than they trust people who have not undergone something similar to what they experienced. Um, you know, I just want to come back <clears throat> to a little bit of the um, just the detail of this. Right when we first began to speak, you talked about the puzzle originally that um, cortisol levels were low because uh, it was high cortisol that was associated with the stress response. And I just want to make sure I understand this. But So what you've learned is that, the, that, that one of these things that gets transmitted would be that perhaps that the offspring of, of people with trauma would, would be born with lower cortisol levels, um, and that what you've learned is that the cortisol actually helps control the stress response, and that the low cortisol... Um, means that there might be a more of a vulnerability as people move through life to, as you described a minute ago, the trauma that comes their way. Is that correct, that? <laughs> nuance that? It, it, it's correct. I can, okay. uh, let, me, let me build a little nuance yeah, okay. into it. Okay. Cortisol is a very important uh, hormone. It's called a stress hormone. It has a lot of different functions in the body that have nothing to do with stress. Uh, it has a lot of function that has to do with metabolism, And it's not so much the um, level of cortisol that is made and released that matters, but it's how the entire system works. And there's a cost and um, a benefit to having low cortisol. Um, So... Both at the same time. At the same time, right? So it's... (laughs) It's, um, and there's a cost and a benefit maybe to having high cortisol. It's just an adaptation. So under the specific circumstance of somebody who is um, being traumatized, who is in the middle of responding to a traumatic event, it's possible that a failure to mount a very high cortisol response would have the consequence of prolonging the sympathetic nervous system arousal, because one of the functions of cortisol is to um, damp down your adrenaline. Okay. So that has been one of the ideas behind why some people have such vivid and traumatic memories. Um, so again, there is. It, it's it's not the case that there is a that low cortisol is good or bad and high cortisol is good and bad. 
it's a, a matter that there will be certain things that are possible at the expense of others. Okay. And um, that's really a very important way that we need to look at biology. And the, the new um, era of molecular biology is really giving us much better tools to look at things in a systems-wide way. Right. So right. instead of just saying, oh, let me take this um, serotonin drug for my depression because it blocks serotonin, and the new way of molecular biology is really look to see how multiple systems might be affected by one kind of an intervention. And I think that that is really um, a much wiser way to, to approach it. Yeah. And and also, just in terms of this, you know, it, it feels to me like it, it, it allows us, I'm kind of keep coming back to the same point, but that it allows us to have a more system-wide view. Also, communally, you know, we have the language of public health or sociology when we look at, you know, when we analyze... Um, Places in our society where we kind of see—I I mean, we haven't—we haven't called it generational trauma. We haven't had that vocabulary. But you know, you'll look at poverty and unemployment and discrimination and alcohol, you know, addiction. Um, but to again, to me, to and you know, I do feel—I I hear your insistence on always seeing the the positive side of this as well as the negative side. And to me, it is actually positive to have this practical way to talk about transformations that have happened, that are physiological, um, that also can be a source of, and, and probably m- must be addressed for a kind of whole, holistic um, healing to take place. I I think so. I mean, what what... What trauma does sometimes for people is that it really focuses them on the past. They have a lot of trouble staying in the present, and there's virtually nothing left for the for thinking about the future. Right. And really, it's very important that although you can't change what has happened to you in the past, um, there's this whole future that you might be able to do something about. And that what has happened to you that is very negative or challenging might have in some way given you an opportunity or something that you can use in a positive way. That's not to, to um, put rose-colored glasses on, the, on trauma. That, no. That's not it at all. Um, I've already described, I think it's clear that... Um, the effects of trauma can be very, very devastating, but there's a there is a tomorrow, and um, I think people have to feel that the changes that they make, even when they're feeling like change is impossible, mm-hmm. will also have long-term effects that it, that they'll take. That's that's really the um, underlying message. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so there's just so much. Um, I mean, something. There's a. I I do keep being intrigued by how how some of this insight, which is human, and now it also turns out that we can kind of see it in terms of chemistry, is is also there in in spiritual text. I mean, you quoted this passage from Ezekiel. 
The fathers ate sour grapes, and the children's teeth were set on edge. Right. It's a re- it, it, in the Bible. It's rhetorical. It, it means the fa- if, well. The with it's not. It's not meant to be um, it descriptive. Was quoted funny in that in that uh, it, referring to that tablet piece, but the idea is that um, it's a hard thing to imagine that if your father ate sour grapes, the children's teeth will be rotted, and yet <laughs> science is teaching us exactly right. that. Yeah. So, um, so that that is what that quote was about. Yeah, and. I mean, it is. I, I do think it's Im, Im, important to 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 keep underlining the fact that this science is so. This what you're learning and what you're working on is is opening up so much new insight and possibility. But it's it was hard as you went through as you were making your discoveries and your colleagues were making these discoveries. I mean, it was there's there was a lot of skepticism. All along the way, and I, I still think these ideas uh, that we, that, you know, as just as you said, there was skepticism about PTSD. Um, this kind of idea still has a ways to go before it's really settled um, in our midst. Um, I think that's right. I think that um, what throws us off, and why these ideas are often challenged is because there isn't a uniform response to uh, stress or trauma. And uh, in, the, in the beginning when stress uh, responses were first being conceptualized by Hans Selye, the idea was that there was a rather universal response, um, that every, everybody behaved pretty much the same way, um, even across species, uh, to challenge it was a short-lived response, and it was, um, and and the the greater the cortisol response of the adrenal, the more severe the stressor. And I remember in graduate school, how did you know if a rat felt stressed? You measured their cortisol level. You didn't have, you didn't get to interview the rat about their experiences and <laughs> in whatever contraption you had them in. You you assumed that the greater the stress response, the greater the stressor. And so it throws things off when, when the world isn't that ordered. Yeah. It throws things off when people respond differently to events. Um, so it's very hard to um, have somebody say, this event derailed me when somebody else who experienced the same event wasn't derailed by the event. Right. And so... We have to appreciate that um, there is quite a lot of variability and diversity in the way that we respond. And some have argued that the diagnosis of PTSD is too limiting, and some have argued that it's too expansive. But one thing is for certain, post-traumatic stress disorder is one kind of response to trauma, and there are probably many others, including resilience. Right. So that's what we have to keep in mind, that there are many different kinds of ways to respond to our environment. So, um, you know, I've interviewed your colleague, Bessel Fender Kolk, and I've spoken to different people across these years about all the different ways. We're learning that trauma lodges in the body and that talking about it is not always at all, um, at least not a whole c- complete approach to it, um, because... Well, because 
traumatic memories are not so much remembered as re-experienced, for one thing. But if you, you know, and I think Bessel van der Kolk, who's, you know, and others, they're working with yoga and meditation and EMDR, this fascinating eye movement therapy. But I wonder if you're talking with, say, the, if, about generational transmission, so the children or grandchildren of people who experience a trauma, who've somehow inherited a vulnerability in themselves, um, if those aren't your memories to somehow work with um, or heal or however you want to talk about that, how, how is the process of healing different what so how do you have you seen people um, generationally um, come to make resilience out of that thing that is lodged well, in their bodies I, that's that's a really good question I mean how we approach treating children of Holocaust survivors was to validate that and to help them articulate what their trauma was. So they weren't in Auschwitz. Yeah. Their trauma was being awoken in the middle of the night by blood-curdling screams of the nightmares of their parents and not wonder and not understanding what that was about. Their trauma was knowing that something was wrong in how their parents were responding to things and not quite being able to articulate what that was. So what you talk about in therapy is your stuff. Um, we would really um, not encourage a lot of narratives around this is what happened to my mother and father. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I don't think that that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what happened to you when you were growing up. Tell me about what your experience is. And I think for Holocaust offspring, it was helpful to talk. I think there are some circumstances, again, it depends on what has happened. I think there are some traumatic experiences that are extremely physical in nature. Um, I've spoken to quite a few people who almost drowned um, and what they and they can't say words without going into deep panic attacks. I don't think it's really helpful <laughs> yeah, yeah. to um, have them continue to talk. Or for people who were traumatized when they were very young, and they and the memory is so fragmented anyway yeah. Yeah. that that attempts to put them in words sometimes falls short even of their own um, to their own satisfaction. So I don't think that talking is for everyone. But I think that for a lot of people, it's very helpful. Um, and again, I agree very much that a lot of the distress is in the body and knowing where the trauma is in the body and, and learning how to feel your bodily sensations is a first step towards being able to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. So I think that all that's good. And there are a lot of ways to approach it. And it would be some of would it be you would also be using some of these same meditation yoga. Um, I don't well, know. Yeah. I, I think yoga in particular mm -hmm. is um, very important, and meditation for the same reason in in focusing on your breath and on the moment, because mm -hmm. being able to regulate and control your breathing is a very important thing to do. Many trauma survivors really begin to hyperventilate or have shallow breathing or develop almost a pre-panic uh, situation of distress when they're talking about 
or re-experiencing their memories, and it makes them really seek to avoid reminders. And so being armed with the ability to control your breath can be very helpful. But again, we have to appreciate that different kinds of traumatic circumstances will impact people differently. Um, Some traumatic experiences come with a very strong physical experience component. Um, In in combat veterans, a lot of times people develop post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury from the same event. So it it really depends on what happens um, to to really uh, understand how much there is a physiology or physiologic feeling. But that physiologic feeling um, really does need to be dealt with because it really stands in the way of being able to experience pleasure, being able to be in the here and now, and it really sustains the fear right. and the panic at traumatic triggers. It actually keeps that experience lodged. Yeah, and it really re-livable. keeps it alive, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask the question this way. Um, because it seems to me, you know, what you're doing is you're contributing to this whole sense of how complicated we are. And uh, it's always a dance between what comes to us f- physiologically um, and also how we behave. I mean, it's not, I think, you know, what you're saying is that parents who've experienced trauma do pass that on in ways that have genetic biological force. Um, but there also are experiences their children are having that are about that are traumatizing that are about how those how their parents are with them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So if uh, if if I as a parent had a traumatic experience, I mean, if you were working with say a, a, a mother who had been in the second or third trimester on nine eleven, as you say, people who um, who you've worked with, uh, what can um, what can a parent do to um, transmute, the, you know, to work with that inheritance factor, to, knowing that it's there? Um, you know what I'm asking? How do you... Yeah, and yeah. I'm really glad that you um, brought up the 9-11 study because mm-hmm. we sort of didn't finish the loop on talking about yeah. it. The reason that that study was so pivotal, even though we weren't able to do as comprehensive a biologic assessment as I had, as, as we had been able to do in adults, was that what we learned was that there was a trimester effect on cortisol levels in the babies. And that was really huge for us, and it opened a lot of um, doors for us because we began to understand that some of the differences between maternal and paternal trauma and risk might um, have to do with the very special in utero changes or in utero contributions to what we call developmental programming, which is really about changing the stress system so that it can have this greater repertoire So you asked me a concrete question of what I would say to a second or third trimester mother. Um, What I generally say to people that have um, a lot more to overcome because their biology has given their their condition a 
firmer reality is that you have to work harder or you have to mm. understand that a lot of what you have is biologically driven. And I find that just this information... Just the information, um, just naming it. Just the information. Yeah. Um, there was one time in, a, in one of the Holocaust groups that... Um, at the time, I was doing uh, circadian rhythm studies, and I was asking people, I can't believe they agreed, I was asking people to come into the hospital, um, not eat or or not eat, really, for about a 24-hour period um, while I took, well, while we would have a uh, IV in them and, and withdraw blood every half hour over a 24-hour period. <laughs> So that we can really look at their uh, how their um, the pattern of their hormonal changes, and what we learned from that study was that that hormonal levels go down very far, but they also go up very high. So that what's really happening is that people with post traumatic stress disorder and also their offspring have a very dynamic stress system that is really highly sensitive to environmental provocation. You can act. So in therapy, um, one of the women was talking about something stressful that had happened at work. It was in a group psychotherapy. It was a terrible story. But then she stopped and she said, and then I remembered that Dr. Yehuda said, I have poor shock absorbers and I should just let it pass because my <laughs> biology is going to have extreme responses before it calms down. And then I did, and it really worked. Now, I didn't yeah. say that, <laughs> but <laughs> I wasn't that clever. But what was so interesting was how she had internalized yeah. the information that her stress system was more responsive and had used it to actually... Um, calm down all by herself in response to um, a stressful situation. So I pointed that out, of course, because it had nothing to do with me. But but it's just the power of information. It's that knowledge as a form of power, just the knowledge itself. Exactly. And I think if we know what's going on in our bodies, Mm -hmm. then it just takes a lot of the confusion and the panic away from it, especially if we have this idea that this is a step on the way to having um, having an equilibration of some sort. Does, does what you're learning also hold for uh, parents who, let's say, I'll just be really, I'll just, you know, be personal here. You know, I've, I've struggled with depression at times. And I think when you have something like that, you, you know, of course, we know that genetically there can be predispositions for these things, but it also feels like it's in this category of something that you worry about passing on to your children in every possible way. I mean, I don't know. I'm just does does this also? There are all these. There are all kinds of things that we. I mean, it, it, and that depression does, you know, can feel like a form of trauma in its way. Um, oh, absolutely. De- depression is horrible. Yeah. Um, and it does pass to children. But I think um, I-, I think one of the things that can be very empowering is to pass along um, coping strategies instead of saying things like, well, I have depression, but that can never happen to you. <laughs> yeah. um, 
You say things like, I worry sometimes that you might get scared when you're down. Mm-hmm. And when I'm down, it's awful. But I, I can reflect back on it and know it's an illness. Mm-hmm. Um, or something that can be, again, a tool. Or So the worst thing that you can probably do when you have depression is to not name it. And to, to make a lot of attributions that are not valid about your character or yeah. <laughs> about other things or that you're not trying hard enough. Um, the thing to do when you feel your depression is what you would do when you feel any illness, and that is have it treated. And of course, not every illness is treated very easily, but you deal with it for what it is. It's not a character flaw. It's not um, anything like that. So teaching somebody how they might deal with something that you might pass on. Um, mm-hmm. is probably the thing that I would recommend. Are you working at all with, um, you know, we've talked about that how this research um, speaks to, gen- the whole idea about gen- generally generationally transmitted trauma speaks to also groups of people. Um, are you, do you work at all in communities? I mean, it seems to me you're the, this neighborhood in Cleveland that you've worked with kind of clusters of Holocaust survivors, but are, is, is, is this science being brought into, in, to the communal level like this, or is it useful at that level? Um, I don't know. I, I'm, mm-hmm. not bring, I'm not really dealing with things in that manner. Mm-hmm. I think that in, in general, most, um, most uh, mental health providers deal with the unit of the individual yeah. or sometimes the family. And um, it's very hard to go beyond that. The time that you have a community accessible to you is when there's a great tragedy that happens in the community. Yeah. And then you can um, kind of do a community healing. And ironically and interestingly, um, uh, you know, usually we have our religious leaders do a lot of this communal that trauma work. <laughs> and because yeah. you don't have a mental health professional up there in right. front of, you know, many families praying uh, because something bad has just happened. So yeah. I think that we um, charge our spiritual leaders with doing a lot of this work. Well, you know, what you said a little while ago, though, is that the spiritual traditions have actually created these containers for doing this name, doing the naming, right? And and putting ritual around it so that it has its place, um, but it also has boundaries. Um, and also, I just think there's language like there's the language of lamentations. <laughs> don't you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That we don't yeah. that we don't have culturally, but it's so necessary to the reality of. Well, Jewish tradition um, believes that the same person who wrote Lamentations also wrote the Song of Songs. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's uh, it can't can't verify for you, but but um, yeah, the idea is that this this is a moment. It's an expression. Um, it's a time of your life. It's not necessarily a. Um, def- defining you always. And that's sometimes what happens with people who are traumatized, that when they have um, good times, 
it causes them to really doubt their illness or causes them to wonder about some of the dark times. And sometimes in um, the, the, um, in the circumstance of disability, you know, we want our disabled people to be disabled all the time, <laughs> you know, because otherwise we don't understand why they're getting benefits. But in reality, um, that's just not the way it is. Uh, people can have um, periods of good functioning um, and periods of bad functioning, and it's and it can be quite uneven. Um, there could be triggers that make things worse. There could be um, good environmental circumstances that make things better. There could just be a natural cycle. Um, thing, you know, time can make things better or make things worse. So there, there are just a lot of different ways of um, really approaching this. I want to just make sure, can we have five or ten more minutes at the at, um at there and okay, just because we start, we got started pretty late because we okay. Um, sorry, I was talking behind the glass. I hope you can, that was clear. Um, so let me just ask you this as we as we draw to a close. Um, you know what what right now as you're in the middle of this this whole idea of you know epigenetics, generational transmission of trauma. Like what what still really bedevils you? What is it? What is something that really puzzles you that you that you want to to grasp, and also what is most um, kind of giving you hope? Well, we still don't really understand why people um, respond so differently um, to traumatic circumstances, and I think that that continues to be the holy grail. Um, just trying to work out whether there are early predictors of these trajectories that I've outlined. Can we really predict resilience, or is it something we have to actually do? Um, that That's something that we still don't know and that we are working hard to find out. And the other thing that, as a scientist, what I'm really preoccupied by is how to um, obtain really important and good information about how the brain functions from blood samples. I think that this remains one of the really difficult um, issues in mental health research, that the tissue that we so need access to is just not available for study the way it is in other medical diseases. So I think that um, there are a lot of opportunities in the future to use new technologies um, to look at some of these uh, problems. Um, and that's kind of what I think um, my colleagues and I will be doing for the next few years anyway, mm -hmm. um, towards the goal of a more personalized approach to therapeutics. Um, we talked in this last hour about how some things work for some people and they don't work for others. Yeah. Um, but there's got to be a scientific way to know that in advance. It can't just be all about trial or error. There has to be some way to capitalize on our knowledge of molecular biology to give us tools to know who should get yoga and who should get um, medication X or medication Y and who should talk and who shouldn't talk. Right. That should be how we use our biologic knowledge. This is kind of, it's kind of analogous to the, to the 
to the move within the cancer research area to be able to identify what kinds of treatment different bodies will respond to in different cancers, isn't it? I mean, exactly. Yeah. And and you waste a lot of time, and hopefully, um, you know, you don't do any harm by barking up the wrong tree treatment-wise. I mean, there are people that we have given the gold standard psychotherapy trauma-focused treatment with that get worse. There are people we've given medications that are FDA-approved for the treatment of PTSD uh, that don't get better. Uh, There has to be some way of Mm -hmm. being able to understand people so well that we get it right on the first time and that the other I guess the other thing that is really very important is that PTSD and trauma um, have very um, big effects it's a a multi-systems disorder so while we've talked today about a lot of the mental um, symptoms there are a lot of physical symptoms. Uh, we're just learning now that trauma really sets the stage for metabolic illness and immune illness and cardiovascular disease. And these are probably um, uh, incubated by the same processes that um, result in long-term symptoms. So we have to start taking a much more comprehensive approach to the problem of trauma as a multi-systems problem Mm -hmm. so that we can also prevent the negative health effects of trauma while we pay attention to the mental effects as well. Right. I, I I just say I'm so struck kind of coming back to what you said to me at the beginning about the fact that we, we hear people say, what you know something traumatic happened to them and it it could be it could be a veteran who came back from war it could be rape it could be an you know violent accident or a, a, a criminal attack um and they say it changed me and your your this knowledge that you have now have is in fact it did it changed people with genetic force and it it can it, epigenetic epigenetic force and it can be passed <laughs> okay. it can be passed on um uh also just i'm so struck by the fact that this knowledge itself just t- uh, acknowledging the force of what has happened to us of the force of trauma itself is a piece of knowledge that i don't know if you want to say it's healing but that it helps that it that it's kind of a, it's that it's a it's a it's a building block to um to healing. I think it's a necessary prerequisite for healing. Mm-hmm. You have to do more than just recognize it, but you have to recognize it. Right. And I think, you know, we've talked about, um, t- you know, what to do about pregnant women who are exposed and things like that. I mean, you have to, we have a, a culture that goes to two extremes. They either completely dismiss something as nothing happened, don't worry, or they get very hysterical about. <laughs> okay. Um, what what might have happened. There's a hysteria sometimes also, mm-hmm. and you know what I mean by yeah. that. And really what we have to do is give ourselves a little time after um, an adverse event to kind of take stock and not be so hard on ourselves or not set expectations and just listen to our bodies and 
give ourselves the space to be quiet and to heal and to see, to ascertain what has been damaged and to, to try to counteract that by putting ourselves in the most unstressful healing environment that we possibly can have to counteract some of that and promote a, a biological and molecular healing process that might forestall some of the epigenetic and molecular changes. And and I know this is not precisely where you were working, but I, I do just keep hearing as you speak, I keep hearing the, the resonance of this for for common life, for public life. I, I mean, I keep having this memory of some an experience I had a couple of months ago. I was in the city of Louisville, um, where they're working on, from the mayor to the chief of police to the school system, they're trying to figure out what it would be to be a compassionate city. And they're and they're and they're actually mm. using some science in this. They're bringing some contemplative methods into schools. It's very interesting and very holistic. And uh, and yet they have they have the same you know they have a magnitude of issues to deal with that every American city has to deal with. And there was an actually an, a pastor, an African American leader um, who is a, uh, uh, leads one of the important, important church there. And he said um, that the, he said that just one of the most important transformative things that the new, that this mayor had done was then that, that young people in his community had said this to him was to, to sit with their grief like mm-hmm. to to be to dwell with the tr- and you know I'm not and they may have used the word trauma, um, mm-hmm. but just to let that be in the room, feel feel it, feel yeah. it instead of running to someone to give you a sleeping pill, yeah, feel it. I mean, if you want to have that kind of a culture, it boils down to two words. It boils down to being able to ask someone, "You okay?" You know, just. The idea that you are acknowledging the possibility that something bad has just happened to someone mm-hmm. and inquiring about them is really, really at the heart of how military cultures really uh, check up on each other. Um, and in other healing cultures, you really you really hear a lot of people saying, "Hey, you okay?" Mm-hmm. And if you're not and, okay, I mean, the fact that you're not okay, right? That something terrible really has happened, and letting that be, letting that also be true. Well, a second stage is saying no, when no, you're not, but <laughs> right. That's, right. <laughs> that's that's a different problem altogether. But yeah. just the idea of creating the space for that to be a possibility mm-hmm. instead of having the assumption in in our lives we just assume everything is okay yeah and how are asking, you great right we do that right. reflexively how are you has become a pleasantry that is devoid of all meaning yeah so we have so that was good when it was probably developed, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. before we started snapping into fine as no matter what was happening. But um, but just really kind of taking a second to inquire um, in a real way mm-hmm. about how someone is doing. And even if they don't tell you and even if they lie to you, it will probably have a um, beneficial mm-hmm. effect. Mm-hmm. So... So, um, I'm just, I'm curious about how all of this work you've done, this science you work with, 
shapes the way you come to think about what it means to be human. And, you know, we talked a little while ago about how sometimes, and I think with trauma, you often hear this language, even in very secular settings of it, you know, soul-stealing experiences. Um, you know, how do you think about, uh, th- you know, what it means to be human? And, and you know, as, if you think about what in that can gets wounded that can also be healed, you know, what, how, how has this informed your thinking about that? Well, I never heard that expression, soul-stealing. No? Um, and it's really good. I like it. I mean, what I hear from trauma survivors, um, the part... Par- what I'm always struck with is how upsetting it is when other people don't help or don't acknowledge or um, respond very poorly um, to needs or distress. Um, I'm very struck by that, and I'm very struck by um, how many Holocaust survivors got through because there was one person that became the focus of their survival or they, or they were the focus of that person's survival. And I think that, um, you know, what it means to be human is to have humanity um, and compassion. So I think in a world where you feel that nobody cares no matter what happens, it's very, very harsh. Um, and, you know, they've done a lot of studies of, of, tr- of children who are traumatized early in life by, and not, I'm not talking about um, chronic child abuse, but, but basically events that are, n- are out of the ordinary for their environment. Yeah. And it turns out that a big predictor of their outcome is how distressed their parent, their mother was, how... Or, yeah. In, in other words, the ability to receive the appropriate kind of comfort, um, the ability for a parent to focus on the child's need at the time of a trauma is, is really huge um, in terms of the long-term effects of something. So I, mean, I think that's really very powerful. So how we behave towards one another individually and in society, I think can really make a very big difference in, um, in uh, uh, honestly, the effects of environmental events on our molecular biology. Yeah, <laughs> so right, yeah. it, becomes, it becomes very interesting when you think about it that way, but I think it's true. Mm. Compassion in its chemical, the effects of compassion on, in chemical forms. <laughs> exactly. It's a good study. Wow. Um, well, thank you so much. It's really fascinating, important work you're doing, and I really appreciated this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much Great. for having me. Okay, and I know Lily's in touch with you, and if she has any other questions, she might reach out. Perfect. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye.